This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontier, show number 37, recorded on July 11th, 2017. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future, all from an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the SD. Uh, .tv studios. There we go. And in Bellevue, Nebraska. Of course, we post a show with world-class show notes each week out at TheAverageGuy.tv. If you have questions, comments, contributions, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email. Uh, you can talk, contact me, Jim, at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can find me on Twitter, of course, at Jay Collison. And don't forget, TheAverageGuy.tv platform, both media and web hosting, powered by Maple Grove Partners, a very, very fast Maple Grove Partners these days. Lots of great upgrades going in over there. Get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people you know and you trust. He's sitting right across from me. For more information, visit Maple Grove Partners. Just maplegrovepartners.com. Plans start as little as $10 a month for rocking stuff. Christian has said to me several times, we'd like to keep as much of the business in our community as possible. And so if you're listening and you're thinking about hosting, and he really can host just about anything, but uh, specializes WordPress, to be honest. If you want a WordPress site, lots of great stuff going on there. And you're a podcaster, 10 bucks a month, can't beat it. Head out to maplegrovepartners.com. Christian, thanks for doing that, by the way. Yeah, it's an awesome way to uh, keep the community throwing out new podcasts and new community ideas. So I'm all for yeah. it. I don't think people really realize, I mean, you're hosting not at the, not only the average guy.tv. So if you go out there, it's there. But all the media files, minus the video ones, I wanted to try a different service for the for the video. Um, but you've got everything for everything, Home Gadget Geeks, everything, Cyber Frontiers, anything else we do. I put out a new Home, te- uh, home Tech Tips. We talked about storage uh, on, a, on, a, on a most recent. Uh, by the way, we catch up. Cyber Frontiers catches up to Home Tech Tips. Uh, we did 37 out this week. All that's hosted, supported, bandwidth, everything out there at, uh, at Maple Grove Partners. So it can handle just about anything. And um, we, uh, Christian, I, I really appreciate you hosting. All right. Uh, tonight, we're back. Two weeks have gone and we're, we've got a show. Congratulations on uh, on another week. Feels nice to have a normal cadence again, doesn't it? <laughs> it kind of does. I'm not going to lie. I was at work. I'm like, yes, we get to do another Cyber Frontiers tonight. That's awesome. So it's been kind of fun. If, you, if you're just catching up, uh, 36 was two weeks ago. You might want to go back and listen to it again. Um, kind of get caught up to speed on ransomware and all those and everything that goes along with it. I think uh, Christian and I have a pretty lengthy discussion about that. And so check it out if you haven't. If you missed it, you're just coming back to the to the show, 36 We'll get you go if you go to theaverageguy.tv and then forward slash uh, cf zero three six. That will get you there as well. What do you what do, what do you want to talk about tonight? Well, I wanted to first circle back on our sneak preview last week and have a conversation about the Bitdefender box because I thought that was a cool device that was worth covering. Had some nice crossover and coverage where. You know, these are devices that are typically in enterprise, but now we're seeing consumer-based versions built. So I want to start off with that tonight, have a little conversation. Um, But really, the main subject of tonight's show is going to be talking about um, new cyber cyber exploitation techniques with SSRF um, and how these types of techniques are leading to what I call CMS Swiss cheese. Um, so we're seeing WordPress and a lot of other content management systems on the internet really under full court assault in ways that uh, just continue to amaze and get 
um, incredibly more um, clever and dumb all at the same time. So I'm really hoping to build a show around that tonight. Um, we're also going to do a sneak preview of uh, DEF CON topics. We're about two weeks out from DEF CON out in Las Vegas on July 27th through the 30th at the Caesars Palace. And uh, I think we'll we'll have fun with that. Cool. Hey, before we get started, uh, Lopta was asking, since we were talking about Maple Grove Partners, uh, minimum VPS, Christian, is what he asked out there in the chat room. Yeah, so there's the two different plans. You have the standard plan, which is I I don't like to make this analogy because I think people get the wrong idea in their head, but it's the equivalent of like a shared pool of resources. We do nothing like how shared hosting companies set up shared hosting where they're shoving a lot of people in the same box that can't handle the same resources. We're custom tuning and doing a lot of stuff there. So like one of our promises to you is we measure the speed of our site and our network by how fast our homepage, maplegrovepartners.com loads for you. And that maplegrovepartners.com homepage is not on a VPS. It is on that same $10 a month plan that everyone else would be on. So we like, we like to show customers that our entry level plan is a really fast and reliable service and is secure. Um, the minimum VPS is when we talk about dedicated hosting. One of the primary advantages to dedicated hosting is that you can have um, SSH or shell access. You can build, customize, and deploy your own applications. You can also get a static IP option, which allows you to host specific services off of non-standard ports. Um, and so the VPS hosting plan starts at 40 a month. That gives you 200 gigabytes of storage, the same high-speed fiber optic line. You can create pretty much as many databases, FTP accounts you want. Uh, we'll put you on four cores with four gigabytes of RAM that the RAM is dedicated to you. Um, and then you can expand up that from there. So a lot of people will buy the $40 a month dedicated hosting. And then if they really are doing something um, crazy, they're going to expand up and buy a static IP from us so that they can use custom services. But again, um, when we talk about speed, performance, scale, and load, we try and make our $10 a month plan just as fast as if you built it yourself on a dedicated hosting account. So, cool, cool, good stuff. You can get a get a good get a good feel for what it looks like. Just head out to theaverageguy.tv and and uh, check it out. All right. So enough about pimping Maple Grove Partners. What uh, do you want to do? Box first. You want to come back yeah. to that later? You want to talk about that? Let yeah, me. Yeah, let's do box first. Let me let me show this really quick. So Bitdefender has been pimping this box. This is the V1 version of their box. Um, V2 was announced this year at CES. Um, checked out the reviews on it uh, early. Not the greatest for V1. It's a, an appliance that's really designed to kind of plug in what I'm hoping for is an average guy appliance that kind of plugs in for the average family. You could kind of plug it in simply. It would kind of take over at least some of the entry point. I've uh, Christian, I used OpenDNS to protect my network for a long time, except there it, it interferes with some of the Drobo capabilities that I have now as far as being able to get to my Drobo externally. Some of those things, actually, we saw it on a show here where I tried to show some of the Drobo stuff while I was using OpenDNS, and it doesn't look secure, and all kinds of weird stuff were going on because I was using OpenDNS. So when I took, and, and, and really, I use OpenDNS because I want to protect the family network because I can't watch 
you know, Rich Hay from Windows Observer, he always says, you know, he has secure uh, computing habits. He makes sure he doesn't go to the right place. I can't guarantee my wife yeah. and children won't do the same thing, right? And so I'm especially in this in this profile that we're in now where with ransomware and they've kind of upped the game. Like I started kind of thinking, you know, I'd love a box I could plug in. Bitdefender box, a little expensive. I think over a hundred dollars in most cases, maybe 139 is the most you're going to pay. You can buy five, probably find it for 99 in some cases. These are V1 prices. And then I got a special deal because I'm already a customer. I got it for 59 and with it came unlimited seats to their, um, to their total security internet, I think it's called Internet Total Security 2017 Suite Unlimited. I could put it on as many PCs. And you know, here at the Collison House, we're running, oh, I don't know, seven, eight, or nine PCs in the house. Plus, it, uh, uh, both for Android and iPhone, I can use their client, which I haven't really used yet. So that by itself, if you were going to use you know, antivirus or any ransomware is what I'm calling it now. They have some ransomware features built into it now. For 59 bucks, or let's just say 60 I thought it was a pretty good deal, right? And, yeah. and it comes with a little box that's about this big. It's sitting right on top of my Nook. I have a little Intel Nook, and it's actually just a little bit smaller and then about this thin. And I don't have it connected to the network yet, although I do have it plugged in so I could get access to those keys. Um, and I've, I've since updated everything on the network to that. And actually, what's really interesting is once I updated my profile at, at I think it's bit def- uh, BitCentral or Central, I think it's BitCentral.BitDefender.com, the PCs automatically that were assigned to my um, to my user account automatically updated to the upgraded software. So they had been on whatever the antivirus version was without the total security. I went back to upgrade them, and I they had automatically upgraded themselves to the total you know the 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 total internet security, which has got some interesting features in it. So, Christian, my question to you uh, last week when we were on to talk about it is. What do you think of these appliances? And the reviews have been, this hasn't necessarily delivered on what it was promised in V1. V2 that was announced at CES had a little more promise in it. Um, I almost waited and I thought, no, this is a good price and I can buy those keys anyways. But when you think about security appliances for the average guy or the above average guy, uh, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thought. Most, um, in most cases you have, boxes like this that are put in the enterprise and they're not the cute little $100 white looking Apple TV kind of box are these larger rack mounted devices that are listening to all traffic coming inbound or outbound at the gateway of your company or corporation, essentially filtering and protecting network traffic, scanning network traffic, looking for anomalies, seeing changes in how the network is deployed to or what IP addresses are coming and going. So it's nice to see these technologies kind of scaled down to the home users. I think one area of interest for me would be to measure how these boxes impact like internet bandwidth and performance. For example, usually the more devices you put in the middle between your modem coming in from your home and you, your consumer device, it's more probable that you might have either higher latency or lower bandwidth. I doubt this is the case with this device. It seems like it's probably going to support gigabit ethernet and you're going to have your own wireless access point coming off of that as is. So I don't see a huge... um, 
performance loss in installing a system like this. I think when you evaluate these systems, there are some other tangible benefits to consider. Uh, for example, with Bitdefender, if you buy the box, you get one year of their all-access unlimited subscription to use their antivirus package on any desktop. That's pretty powerful considering that the package deals for putting antivirus on multiple computers for other companies probably would be more expensive and you're not getting a hardware box on top of it. With any type of intrusion detection or prevention system, however, I am always concerned that they themselves being the entity or the boxes that are doing this additional protection for you can open up a attack vector in and of itself. We've seen this in several cases in the enterprise before, but it's unclear whether or not those same scenarios really apply in the home user case. I think a lot of what these boxes are doing is really traffic rule-based, blacklisting, checking IP addresses, making sure your DNS is clean. And those things by and large are safe and good things to do. One of the big advantages of having a device like this in your house is that you don't have to set up a proxy server. A lot of people are discouraged by the idea of a proxy server in the home. It's a lot more cumbersome to manage and maintain in the home than it is in an enterprise. But the whole point of a proxy server in many respects is to do some of that same type of content filtering, content blocking, and risk mitigation to individuals or devices trying to access the internet on a regular basis that may eventually stumble on a resource that's unsafe or malicious. In the case of the Bitdefender box, you're getting the advantage of it's basically just watching that raw network traffic coming through the wire, going in and out of your modem. So you don't have to think about things like, how do I set up a proxy server? How do I get my computer to talk to that proxy server instead of directly to the router? So there are some pros there. I know in the V1 reviews on PC World and a couple other sites, they said the V1 box was a bit cumbersome to set up. And I think a lot of those concerns have been addressed in V2. But stepping back from Bitdefender and just talking about the concept in general, I think this is likely a great way for individuals to take advantage of kind of commonplace low-hanging fruit um, security defenses that are independent of the devices accessing the network. For example, my desktop might be two weeks ahead on Windows updates from yours, but if my Bitdefender box is keeping on top of the latest threats that might have applied to those security patches, it doesn't matter anymore. It you know it matters, but it's not as big of a um, falling off the cliff directly if your box is two weeks behind on updates and mine isn't. Um, so by and large, I think this is probably an okay thing for people to be doing. I don't see anything that makes me jump out and say, wow, that's really unique. Wow, that's really special. Wow, I wish I had that. Um, so there's not a wow moment for me here, but there's certainly a, this is a common sense thing. It's not really that expensive of a thing when you consider what it's doing for you. A $100 price point to pick up all those software licenses in and of itself, I see is pretty good value. So the fact that you have a box doing additional protection on top of that seems like a, a pro for me, right? So initially, I have positive feedback about this. I haven't read this particular device in detail or looked at its characteristics. But, you know, one of the big selling points for these types of devices now is Internet of Things, IoT, devices that are connected everywhere all the time, always talking. I don't necessarily know if the assertion that this is going to help protect those is true in every respect. 
Certainly, there are a lot of devices and routers, Wi-Fi access points that have really crappy firmware, have lots of vulnerabilities in them. And I think this device would probably do a good job of checking, uh, being a check against that. But in the larger scheme of, is it going to catch things like ransomware? I honestly don't know. I think it's more likely that it would catch the source where you're going to get it then actually scan and see, oh, this is a new zero-day ransomware. Like you're you're relying on their signature database and their heuristic detection at that point. And one of the things that's different between heuristic detection on a network and on a device or a computer is that it can be much more performance costly to have to scan every packet coming into the network than it is to scan your hard drive as things are changing on your hard drive, right? So depending on the level of heuristics and how detailed they're doing in a technique we've talked on the show before, deep packet inspection, where you're basically unloading those payloads and inspecting them in a detailed manner, hard to say what level they're doing that at. I think another thing to consider is more and more of the internet is moving to HTTPS. So Google now has a mandate for webmasters that you got to get on HTTPS. If you're on HTTPS, we're going to put you higher in our search rankings. And so there's services like uh, Maple Grove Partners participates in Let's Encrypt, which is a service that basically gives you free three-month SSL certificates that auto-renew every three months. So you can now turn on SSL and HTTPS and get perfectly valid signed certificates for all your website properties. This is a huge deal considering that previously entry-level SSL certificates costed people about $10 a year for the basic cert. So when you multiply that by the number of sites you run, A, that can be expensive. B, it's like running and it's like paying for another domain registration or renewal fee. And so now that they've taken that away, that it was really a blocker, I think, for a lot of people adopting it. The adoption rate has gone up a lot. So Let's Encrypt has added 40 million website properties using their SSL certificates. And we're seeing a lot of websites now with HTTPS and SSL. My point in explaining all this is that more and more traffic is encrypted end-to-end, and Bitdefender's device is not going to be able to decrypt that traffic. So it can block you from going to a site that's known to be bad, but once you establish a connection to somewhere that's secure, unless it's acting as a man in the middle to violate that SSL connection, which it's not doing, it's not going to actually be able to see that traffic until it's already arrived on your box. Now we're talking about a very kind of down in the weeds, deep level scenario, but I'm illustrating one example where this box is not the the perfect magical pill to solve all network problems, right? It's still possible you could visit a website with HTTPS that has malware on it that eventually leads to a compromise of your network. Um, But that's, again, I, I, I describe it as an edge case because I think a lot of people are relying on the protection Bitdefender has and saying, hey, don't go to that site in the first place, or we know this DNS lookup is bad, as opposed to actually inspecting that traffic on the fly in real time, encrypted or not. But by and large, this is probably a good step for consumers, not a bad step. Let me, I pulled the box off the network. So just so you get some idea what it looks like in a little light below, this glows purple, by the way, when it's configured correctly, glows red when it's not, which is interesting. Then a simple little interface on the back. Of course, there's your power and then in and out. 
right? And it will be, a, it, it can function as your router. So you can put it internet, plug it in. It has a wireless function. Now, I don't know, Christian, a box this big is a wireless router. I just don't. I don't I, buy it. I'm no, sorry. No, no. I'm a little suspect, right? You're kind of like, ooh, yikes. I definitely, you know, the next step, because I could not turn DHCP off on the on hub and put it in bridge mode without having this in between it. That's what I'm going to have to do. So on hub today comes in, goes into the on hub router. DHCP is served throughout everything that's on there. And then it does both wired and um, through a bunch of switches and the wireless connection. It's been pretty well. Uh, I can put this just in between it, bring it in, take it out, take it to the on hub turn off the, and put it in bridge mode. So it's not trying to, you know, so it's basically acting as a access, you know, just an access point. That would be the way, at least here for me to get that going right now. There are some simple apps on your phone that you use to configure this. So once you plug it in, you load the apps, it finds it on your network. Super easy. I just got to that point where I needed to do a setup piece in the OnHub router would not let me go any farther to add this as a component, almost like instead of a pass-through, it would route it through for the traffic, check it, and then let it go um, in the process. Again, I didn't get it working right, but I'm going to continue to work this weekend. I've got some time. You got to take the internet down to get this done at our house. The internet's premium. So you just don't take it down, right? Because you're a bad dad if you uh, if you do it that way. So some good, some good thoughts on it, Christian. I think we'll all continue to mess around with it. Again, it basically was free with the with the licenses. Might right. as well give it a give it a try and see what see what it can and can't do. But I do like the idea of appliance. I'd rather have, and I think Kevin was alluding to this in the chat room. I'll be honest with you, I'd rather love something to just work with my existing router that I could uh, an app yeah, install I, as I a router add in, yeah. Yeah, something along those lines. I thought Google was heading in this direction, to be honest. When the OnHub router came out, I thought they were going to provide, they always will always update it. It'll be great. We're going to get bells and whistles. And it's just been a big dump. I mean, they really haven't done much with it. It still makes a great router, still does its job, but it didn't. I thought we were going to get some cool Google juice with it. We just haven't gotten it. Yeah, and I think, you know, Kevin also asked whether or not it was better as a configuration being your existing router device standalone or whether you should add it on with your with your router already in place right i think for me the wi-fi case for you is pretty telling right like what you just described is like asking me to have a raspberry pi be my wireless access point it's just not going to happen i i bought a big um neck gear nighthawk that has all the you know crazy antennas going on and puts out the ac 1700 with you know you can get almost up to two gigabits per second if you have the matching AC adapter for your desktop. So basically, you know, you can have almost twice the performance of being hardwired at one gigabit per second with those routers. You're just not going to get that on a box like that. But that being said, I think it can probably handle gigabit connections fine. So it's it's not necessarily a bad thing to replace it as your router, as long as you're not also making it be your wireless access point and all these other things for you. I think just as a pass-through device, like awesome, right? Because you're saving one additional hop. Now, it probably would also be fine to plug it in off a switch and then only have certain clients that you want to protect go through that um, switch point. Um, That would primarily be if you want to run things like PFSense still. Like for me, I just like, I wouldn't want to get rid of 
having that advanced control in my router. And I'm not sure what the Bitdefender box provides for consumers to that level, but I imagine it's pretty dumbed down because that's kind of the business model for these devices. That's CMO, right? And that's what I'm looking for. And to Kevin's question, I do want it as an add-on to the router. I I can't get it working with the OnHub to do that. So if I'm going to use it, I'm going to have to use it as a pass-through. Right. And and that makes sense. I think more people will probably end up doing that anyway, because a lot of average consumers don't know how to mess with their existing router and modem configuration because the cable guy installs it. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so what, I'll, what I'll probably do is plug it. I'll take everything down, you know, and I'll plug it into the internet and by itself, and then I'll connect to it with the app and do some configurations. And then I should be able to plug my on hub router onto it put it in bridge mode and I should be good to go because I want the on hub serving up the DHCP addresses. I've had that all set. I don't want to change that now. Right. And so it should be able to still serve those and all the wireless access, you know, in the, in the house. So maybe this weekend, give that a shot. If not this weekend next, but like I said, I need the family, the family's going to be out of town this weekend. So make it easier for me to take the internet down for longer periods of time. So. Awesome. Cool. Well, we're going to pivot into tonight's main uh, showcase, which is talking about uh, server-side request forgeries, or SSRF. And this is really a pretty new technique, which is surprising because I think uh, it, it, it seems like something that people would have thought of a long, long time ago. And now it's a recent popularity blast that's actually leading to a lot of the types of new vulnerabilities we're seeing today. And we've never talked about this type of vulnerability on the show before. So I think this is really fun. Um, There's going to be a link in the show notes that describes and walks you through the basics, but we're going to try and cover it here first based off that article. The article is out at Acunetics at Acunetics.com. And I think they're also a security company. I'm not sure what they are trying to sell you. I'm just quoting their blog and giving due credit where it's due. Um, So server-side request forgery refers to an attack where in an attacker is able to send a crafted request from a vulnerable web application. So let's back up. Like, what did that just mean? Essentially, you're a user. You go out to theaverageguy.tv. What just happened? Your browser saw that you typed in theaverageguy.tv, resolved it to an IP address, and said, go to this IP address and see what comes back when you query it on port 80 slash 443, which is where um, HTTP and HTTPS run. And what comes back is your your server that hosts that website responds with all the content and it gets populated into your browser as different request objects. So what this vulnerability is doing is it's targeting internal systems behind that corporate firewall, right? So typically, your browser is only able to make requests to IP addresses and websites that are on public internet addresses, right? So your routers, like your home router is usually 192.168.1.1, right? That's an example of an IP address that should never be accessible from the outside world. So I shouldn't be able to go and connect to Jim's router page because it's on a private IP address. What server-side request forgery is doing is it's manipulating the requests I'm sending to a specific web application and trying to find a code vulnerability that allows me to have the application that I'm talking to make a request on my behalf inside of the inside pointing towards the internal network and then bring me that traffic back. So essentially 
while the web application you're talking to is on a public IP address, more likely than not, it's almost always going to also be connected to a private IP, which is the management network or the internal network where the resource is being hosted, right? So if I go to the homepage of a small business, it's very likely that they're hosting their website at their corporate office. They have a private IP address where that server lives, where they you know set it up, access it, talk to it when they're in the building. And then their public IP address basically does a port forward on top of that server saying, here's the public IP address. I want to allow users in the World Wide Web to access the server on this specific port to get this specific application. So what SSRF is doing is taking advantage of the fact that most websites are built off of getting a bunch of different data and using HTTP GET requests to make that data dynamic. So we have URL parameters. We've talked about URL injection and basically injecting malicious code into those parameters when it's not sanitized properly. So this is another example where sanitization um, doesn't occur properly and the application isn't written properly. And what happens is the person does not properly check what their Git parameters are, right? It's not filtered correctly. And they inadvertently open up the URL that the hacker passed into the HTTP request, right? So they forged the HTTP request. Maybe that URL is a dynamic URL that's designed to get images off of the server directory, right? So if I'm at theaverageguy.tv forward slash image.php, and I want to get a picture of Jim's dog, well, maybe it's going to be image equals two because the second image Jim ever uploaded on the website was a dog. This is all fictitious. It's good because um, I don't have a dog. Right. So um, what Jim might have forgotten to do when he wrote that feature, though, is check that he actually is only allowing integer numbers in that value for for what type of image he wants to get back, right? So maybe Jim is building a library where each image in his database that he wants to serve to users on the website is just a number, right? So he doesn't properly check. And now I, I Christian, can go and hack Jim's website by replacing that URL parameter with an internal IP address or an internal um, host name. So I might pass him, I might pass him the URL, hey, take me to localhost, uh, HTTP localhost, or take me to 192.168.1.1. And I want to see if what ends up happening is your site goes and fetches that page and brings back that internal page instead of the picture of your dog. So essentially, I'm using your browser in the fact that it has privileged access to that private network to browse on that private network as if I had a computer directly attached to that box. And as a result, I might be able to learn a lot of stuff about how your network's set up, what internal applications and services create your web application, and what else is sitting on that network that was never designed to be exposed or be part of the public infrastructure that you're connecting to. Um, and so this is really interesting. One of the excerpts from this article talks about how server-side request forgery can be used to make requests to other internal resources which the web server has access to but are not publicly facing. Such as an example would be accessing instance metadata in Amazon EC2 and OpenStack instances. So this is where 
folks always wonder what happens when my computer gets assigned 169254169254, right? A lot of times we've seen this before, right? Where we don't get a DHCP address and we're expecting like a 192.168.1.1, but the router went away. And so our computer just gets an unassigned address. What this is basically saying is go communicate with that address and you'll get all the metadata about how that local network is set up if you're in a virtualized environment or otherwise. Um, this takes it a step further and says, hey, there are other protocols besides HTTP that are supported in some of these coding environments. So for example, in PHP, you can use the protocol file colon forward slash forward slash forward slash to try and talk to the file system instead of a website or an IP resource. So before you know it, you might be able to start asking for files that are actually sitting on that server that are privileged and were never designed to be read. So this is really a very powerful capability. It's a very powerful attack. It's also very stupid because it just means that you did poor URL filtering, you are a poor developer, you deserve to be publicly shamed, and you should probably not get anywhere near a keyboard in the next five years. That being said, um, a lot of people are doing this. Web applications grow in the amount of input variables that happen. And I think what a lot of people find is that as they develop these large-scale applications, requirements change, requirements change, things get thrown in, and people just get, get careless, they get sloppy, or they really truly don't know what they're doing. And so there's a lot of um, techniques that are coming out for individuals to start being able to detect when a server-side request forgery is, forgery is taking place. And some of those um, responses include things like, Make sure that you have strong DNS. Make sure you have a whitelist of what things this server is or isn't allowed to talk to, right? Disable unused URL schemas, like don't allow file colon to ever run on a web server because you never are going to have to do that operation for your customers, right? But in retrospect, a lot of people still aren't aware of this and it's very popular. Now, SSRF is one of the new kind of trendy things that folks are using to find big vulnerabilities in content management systems and other systems. This is going to be one of the big uh, talks that I'm excited to go and see at, at DEF CON this year, where um, they're specifically talking about bypassing protections to detecting SSRF. So the title of this guy's talk um, is a new era of SSRF, exploiting URL parser in trending programming languages. So this guy is a security consultant for DevCore. His name is Orange Desai. And he's proposing a new exploit technique that allows a whole new attack surface to bypass um, protections from server-side request forgeries. So this is a big problem. SSRF in and of itself has been around for quite some time. Uh, we just haven't talked about it on the show before. But what he's proposing is actually getting to the heart of how programming libraries implement URL parsing and URL handling and how these built-in libraries and sophisticated web applications that rely on these libraries are opening themselves up to big, big, big vulnerabilities with big consequences. WordPress runs like 27% of the World Wide Web right now. That means if you're the lucky winner that finds a big vul critical vulnerability in WordPress, you own a quarter of the internet. 
that is scary. And you say, oh, that's probably not likely to happen. That's probably just a dumb plugin developer. Well, no, it happened a couple months ago with WordPress uh, version 4.7, and 4.7.1. Both had a critical flaw that very similar to, it was a remote, um, I believe it was a remote execution vulnerability in one of their REST APIs that led to the ability to ar- execute arbitrary code. A lot of websites suffered from this, right? So this is this is big because it's low-hanging fruit, and I think they're using these types and techniques more and more frequently to go after the big-name CMS systems where they can take a quarter of the internet with them, right? So it, it sounds like it's just small-time cybersecurity, but it has pretty real-world and big impact. So this is something that I think a lot of people are going to be watching. A lot of people are taking... Um, are really struggling with, hey, how do I secure my website? How do I secure my WordPress application? Like there definitely used to be a day where you could run WordPress and leave it with default settings and you probably could go to sleep at night in an okay place. You cannot set up WordPress at default anymore and feel like you're in an okay place. There are just so much um, malware, spam bots, et cetera, that are scanning the, the, the entire internet 24-7 looking for WordPress installations so they can try your login, try this, try that. It's really impressive. So um, I don't call out WordPress just because I work with it a lot. I'm calling it out because it's 27% of what internet website properties are available to you through Google and the internet. And this is becoming a big problem. So um WordPress had this big vulnerability a couple months ago with the 4.7 release. 4.8, which is the current latest stable, has looked pretty clean. So we're fortunate for that. But for the most part, a lot of people struggle with those plugin vulnerabilities, with dynamic code, with you know anything that is running like a desktop application, but as an internet application that's powering your website, that's where we start to worry. So really a lot of potential. Um, I'm excited though, because these topics, uh, there's a lot of really great topics this year at DEF CON that cover um, types of vulnerabilities and new emerging trends we're seeing. I'm just, they published the schedule three, four days ago, I think. And really uh, this year's topics excite me a lot more than even last year's. And so I think people are going to enjoy DEF CON 25. And I also think that this is going to be a learning opportunity for a lot of people to get caught up on what's going on with SSRF and why this is related and is having such a big impact in WordPress and uh, other CMS systems and just the internet at large. DEFCON um, in Las Vegas, July 27th through the 30th, 260 cash at the door. I remember us talking about this last year, and that seems so... That seems so odd. They also have some kind of hacker contest or they give you something you can hack on, right? Isn't, right. isn't that right? Isn't that this one? Well, so last year they give you the electronic badges. In fact, I think I might have one somewhere nearby. Yeah. In his drawer, drawer of magic things. Yes. So in my magical cybersecurity drawer, I've just emerged the digital badge from DEF CON last year. Um, you can see this was designed by the Dark Chan- Tangent Group or the producers, and it's literally a circuit board as your badge chip. You can see the battery on the bottom of it. It's got two eyes in the middle with LEDs. You can see there's eight buttons up here, and essentially there's a lot of clues um, printed throughout this circuit board, and 
if you if you're the person who ends up cracking the code, I'm pretty sure you get a free lifetime uh, access to DefCon. Usually, of the tens of thousands of people who go to DefCon, only one or two people get the actual. Um, challenge figured out. And these people are what we call the cybersecurity uh, elites of our world. And it's very hard to do. It's not like it's just, it's not a level of effort task. It's you really got to have some talent and ingenuity for it. But yeah, 260 at the door, you pick up badges like this. I know this year they had a problem with the vendor though and getting them delivered on time. So I think they are doing an alternative uh, they're doing something alternative to the badge contest this year because they weren't able to make that work out, which is unusual because usually they are very well known for their stellar digital electronic badge challenges. But yeah, and DEF CON is a really cool place for that. 260 at the door, I assume no names are taken, right? That's this. That's kind of the, the spirit here, right? Yeah, no names, no numbers. You have no idea if you're talking to a black hat, a white hat, a gray hat, an enthusiast, a noob. It's just a really interesting mixing pot of people who claim to have interests in cybersecurity. And it's funny because I'm sitting here trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to get reimbursement for my travel for this when I... I don't even know if I can get a receipt, right? Last, uh, most of the previous DEF CONs, they have this generic receipt template that is literally the definition of a BS receipt. I mean, it's just, it's like an image PDF that they give you that says, here's the date, here's what we charged you, but it doesn't have your name on it or any of the traditional things you would see in like an invoice or a receipt. So pretty much you got to show them, hey, here's the official badge that I got when I went here's the official price that was put on their website. So that's a fun problem for most Fortune 500 companies that send people out to this event to deal with. Um, I mean, I find it hilarious, but it's this is the only security conference like that. Um, Kevin mentioned in chat, uh, Black Hat, and a couple of the other um, big, big name um, security conferences. They are much more like enterprise or large scale focused. They don't have the same kind of um, neutral undertones where everyone goes in with no name, no identity that DEF CON does. So that's really one of the big differences for this type of conference. It's also much more focused on offensive security in many respects. Uh, I see a lot more offensive-based stuff than you do with some of the other big conferences, which are much more vendor-focused, for example. This is really just raw cutthroat cybersecurity. You get a lot of, uh, we have a lot of lawyers who come out and talk about legal issues in cybersecurity, which we love talking about on this show. Um, there's a, there's some cool application development stuff. There's, you know, there's something for everyone at the, this conference, which is what I really appreciate about it. It's there's stuff for the elites. There's stuff for the first time um, goers and everyone really has a good time here. No one takes each other too seriously, which I really appreciate. I think people are some sometimes looking to get angles or stiff at some of these other conferences, or they're trying to drive an agenda or sell a product. And you just, you don't really feel this way at DEF CON. It's just a really cool place to learn and hang out with a bunch of eccentric people that you're probably not going to get to meet again. So yeah, I would be very uncomfortable there. Yeah, but it's <laughs> not awesome. Lie. That's just not totally, my space. Totally awesome. Yeah, um, no, I bet you're in your element there, and that's awesome. You you kind of glazed over this a little bit, uh, at least I thought so. But if you're on WordPress, you should log in right now. Yeah. Right? And check and see where you're at. If you're on 4.7 or 471, while those should update automatically for you, they are both pretty critically flawed at this point, right? And you can get 
I mean, I see the amount. I get emails every time somebody tries to log in at theaverageguy.tv, and I get a lot. We get hit. We get hammered pretty hard. But that's those are pretty open, right? I mean, at this point, you want to get that upgraded. Yeah, and so one of the interesting things, and this is a great pivot into our last segment, is WordPress in most of the recent versions is supposed to support auto update. So in theory, you should have been auto updated from 4.7.0 or 4.7.1 because it was a security release that they brought out. If it's a security related change, you're supposed to be automatically patched to the next minor release. And that happens most of the time, but there are some sites that I've found that it didn't happen. And so uh, one of the big things I had to deal with a couple weeks ago is a, a customer I consult for uh, came to me with a really interesting issue. Um, Google Search Council. So Google Webmasters Tools is a resource that Google uses for webmasters to basically declare their website property with Google, submit a sitemap, and basically track how well your content is doing in search rankings, getting click-throughs, what keywords you're doing well with, et cetera, et cetera. Google has also really upped their game with compliance, readability, portability, accessibility, reliability, and security of your site. So they're no longer just looking at, do you have great content? They're looking at, is the presentation and the experience of that content just as great? So we talked earlier about how you'll get a little boost if you have HTTPS turned on. Um, You'll get a little boost um, for those types of enhancements. And so one of the things they do is they are now watching websites in real time for signs that they've been hacked or that they have malware. And so if your site has malware, Google adds a link below what shows up in the search result that says this site may have been hacked. And so I had a customer who came to me with this very issue. They got an email that Google reported that they were saying that there's spam and malware on your website. We've added this label as a manual action. And in order for you to get this label removed, you have to clean the malware, verify how it got in in the first place, patch your website, and resubmit it for consideration by a Google engineer to take this manual action off of your site. This is a pretty big blow. Number one, Now, all of a sudden, in real time, anyone who's visiting your site through Google is going to see that nasty label, this site may have been hacked, and your search traffic is going to plummet really fast, right? No one wants to click on a site when it's telling them we're about to hack you. Um, This gets nastier because this is one of the more uh, really just... um, I'm going to borderline... This is borderline evil, right? I mean, some of the stuff is just petty and stupid, but this is really... I hate to say it, well thought out crime. And so what this is, this is a class of malware called black SEO spam, black search engine optimization spam. And these people are really clever. What they said was, we don't want to tip off individuals that we have hacked their website, but we want to do damage. We want to make money. We want to do all the things that a a regular user, you know, would would not notice. So we want to we want to get away with doing all those things without tipping off the owner or tipping off regular visitors that anything is happening. So they came up with this really clever idea somewhere in 2016 was when we first started seeing this, where they 
once they hack and get into your website by whatever means, for example, it's very likely that people got infected with this type of uh, malware as a result of that WordPress vulnerability in version 4.7. And then if you didn't auto-update, you were even more susceptible to get it. And what it does is it installs a, it changes your code in WordPress so that when someone requests a URL to your page, every time you request a URL to your page, um, your browser passes what's called a user agent string. And that's basically telling the web server that's serving you the page what type of device is accessing this website. Is it Google Chrome? Is it Firefox? Is it Internet Explorer? Or maybe is it a, um, a Google search bot or a Yahoo crawler or whatever, right? So what this malware does is it looks for your user agent string and it only reveals itself if your user agent string is set to that of the Google search bot. So basically the only person who ends up seeing the spam is Google search. You think, well, what does that do? Because if Google only sees it, it's not impacting any users and users aren't clicking on stuff. Well, you're wrong because what happens is now Google is starting to index pages that don't appear to regular users, users but appears to Google. So like within the course of two weeks, now Google has indexed hundreds of pages with entire pages filled with content that have bogus spam titles, bogus spam content, the large Viagra pills start pouring over the pages. <laughs> and what ends up happening is it destroys your Google search engine uh, reputation because now your site isn't about technology and podcasting and um, home theater or whatever. It's about did you get the best Cialis supplement? So when you go and search for the average guy, instead of seeing things about cameras, you're seeing things about Cialis pills. So this is crazy because now Google comes by and says, hey, dude, you're infected. Sorry, you must have a problem. And you're like, what are you talking about? All my users are fine. No one said anything looks different. So this is really nasty. And I, I say it's particularly nasty because... If you're someone who wants to take down a competitor or take down a site you don't like that's doing better than you, and you're you have no morals or no ethics, no boundaries, right? Those are all preconditions to participating in black anything on the internet. Um, all you have to do is get one of these nice black EOS black SEO spam bugs into your competitor's website and they will tank off the internet faster than you can believe. So it can be used as a weapon to take out competitors. The spammers love it because they get a bunch of links in Google search results that people can click. They get, you know, they get their content out there, which means I'm making black money and I'm promoting bogus products, right? Which is usually the point of spam. So it does double duty. It's not just, you know, we talk about the annoying times where spam accidentally gets through and gets posted as a comment, like big deal, right? But now when spam comprises 90% of your web content in, um, in your search index, it's really just devastating because it can take Google up to several weeks just to approve your review if you made a mistake and didn't actually close up the vulnerability, you're going to have to redo the review. You're going to have to refix it. 
So this is pretty big. Um, it took me uh, a surprisingly short amount of time to resolve this with my customer. I was able to resolve this in about four days from the time we were notified, which is a pretty big deal. But the um, the malware and had been installed for over a month before anyone knew about it. So it did a lot of damage. Um, but surprisingly, we were able to get it course corrected within this time span of a week instead of the time span of the month that we were expecting it to. And we were able to limit the scope of the reputational damage that was actually done. But this is like a classic case study of it's all these small things adding up, right? You have people talking about doing things like server-side request forgeries more often. These types of new techniques are leading to new ways to analyze programming languages for vulnerabilities in the programming language itself. That in turn leads to major content systems like WordPress having to patch for new core vulnerabilities, which leads to being able to put these creative, clever malware payloads in that just do full-on damage. And so... Um, everything we talked on the show, there many of the things are prerequisites to getting to this point, but a lot of sites are dealing with this all the time. And I know this because Google has entire pages dedicated to getting webmasters healed and out of the black SEO spam nightmare. Because for an average user who just runs a website but doesn't know much about security, you got to hire someone. Like you're not going to fix it yourself. Like it's it's a hard issue. Um, yeah. I, you know, I'd say one of the, Huge, and it's not a huge commercial, by the way. This is actually like the way I feel is that I really rely on your expertise at Maple Grove Partners to keep my stuff. I mean, if it was just up to me, yikes. Like, there's a lot. And yeah, WordPress has got its own overhead, but there's other things, right, that, that I have to keep kind of keep aware of. And so it's nice having you. <laughs> Say these things as you're talking about this, I'm like, oh, good God. I'm so glad you're you're watching out. And it's not me dependent on it because, man, there's a lot of, um, you know, this. You, you put this article in here uh, that they're projecting su- some some are projecting six trillion dollars in damages by 2021 due to this kind of cybercrime, if that's what you want to call it. And most businesses are likely to invest another trillion over the next five years to help mitigate it. So right. I, we've reached some pretty significant numbers. And if you don't think, you know, you think, well, I'm small potatoes, who's going to really infect me? Well, to this SEO hack, uh, any open vulnerability is very, is very popular to them. And then they could, they could change my site into a popular one that I can't see, but is getting traffic that, that is not healthy. Right. Yeah. And so I'll post this in the show notes so that people can see what I'm talking about. But if you if you search the specific, I saved a copy of some of the specific spam terms that appeared in this infected website. If you go and search those terms back in Google, you get a list of all the websites that virus has traveled to and infected. And it's impressive. I mean, it's just like, you have got to be kidding me. This is This is crazy. I mean, just really, really unbelievable stuff. I mean, totally believable from a cybersecurity guy's standpoint, but from an average guy's standpoint, you just sit there and go, holy cow, our internet is literally Swiss cheese and that it is. Yeah. Well, I used to say the reason we started this show was because I thought the, my, the, the premise was the average guy when it comes to technology is screwed, right? They just, it's too complex. Now, PC has come a long way uh, in the seven years, six, seven years we've been doing this show. And we just, Christian, we just don't have those issues like we used to for the most part. And people are moving away from the PC and we're on phones and the issues just aren't there, but man, this is serious business. Yeah. I think about this, 
This is now, hey, I want to I, I want to run a website. I want to get some content out there. It's a blog. It's whatever. It's whatever it's going to be. And then the average guy starts doing this. I think about some of my podcasters who can't even figure out how to plug in a microphone. Right. And then, you know, they, right. they got to run their own WordPress site. And you're like, oh, and, dude, you're and so that's, Yeah, that's the thing. More and more people, like it used to be the challenge of getting them to use technology. Now it's using basic technology is not the problem. They want to have a website for everything. They want, they want to be on the internet just like all the other superstars, right? And so they, they usually can access for very cheap getting themselves stood up. And then maybe those, a percentage of those people get really lucky and build a nice name brand reputation on the internet. And then that brand gets wiped out overnight because they have no idea about cybersecurity and their consulting um, firm that they had do the website doesn't either. So, you know, these are the types of things that um, really can have an impact. And this is not just consumers too. Like this is a corporate problem. These very same vulnerabilities and attacks, um, you know, like black SEO spam really sounds like something that would hit like maybe technology blogs, enthusiast blogs, but it, you know, uh, malware or web bots are, uh, they are the most um, inclusive and diversity focused people on the planet. They do not care who they infect. They want to infect as many people as possible, regardless of content type or purpose. So um, that's that's really the the big takeaway. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's a little bit. We're we're at that time where you know there's we're definitely not in the lull. There is it, it, people it, people are definitely on the attack. And, uh, you know, I, sometimes I think we overblow some of this. This is not those times, right? <laughs> you know, so, uh, one more, one more thing to cover. You, you, you want to talk a little bit? I, I kind of, uh, I kind of, I talked about this yeah, you gave money. Us- I gave it away, but there's money flowing into this business. The money is flowing and it's especially specifically into how, um, artificial intelligence can play a role in cybersecurity. And Darktrace is one of the really big up and rising companies that is fusing artificial intelligence into attacking the cybersecurity challenge. And so you mentioned earlier that businesses are likely to invest around a trillion dollars over the next five years to try and figure out how to mitigate $6 trillion worth of damage by the year 2021. So big, big numbers, big, big money. Put that in perspective. The federal government's deficit right now is twenty trillion, and we're talking six trillion in damages globally. Like we're talking about almost thirty percent of our entire national debt over the last thirty years. That's pretty big number, right? Um, so they just got another seventy-five million dollars to use a. Uh, they're using machine learning techniques to basically detect and stop attacks. We've talked about machine learning on the show before in our big data segments. And so they got another 75 million. This startup is really doing pretty well. They have a post evaluation of 825 million and their business model is looking pretty strong. I mean, they brought in 200 million worth of contracts, 3000 global customers and they've grown 140% in the last year. This is coming from um, a report that came out today on TechCrunch about this company and its valuation. So um, there's other people in the artificial intelligence hoorah for cybersecurity. 
Um, CrowdStrike is obviously a big name in the business. They are much more established than what Darktrace is. They've been around for longer. Um, I got a chance to meet the CTO of CrowdStrike out at RSA conference back in February. Um, he was the one of the pivotal characters that made CrowdStrike take off and be the success that it is today. And Silence is another big company um, that is run by the former president of RSA as a company and RSA is now owned by Dell. And I also got to meet um, that individual who is the former president of RSA and now um, is leading up business at Silence. So a lot of the big names who have been in the business for a while are really starting to pour their research and innovation dollars into artificial intelligence um, and cybersecurity. And it makes a lot of sense because a lot of the cyber problems we see, it involves how is the data flowing? How is the data being leaked out? And how is the data being used to damage systems? So I think this is a promising avenue for where cybersecurity research and products will work in the future. I think a lot, I think in five years time, a lot more products are going to be machine learning based than they are uh, heuristic virus detection, signature detection, like we have in traditional antivirus software. I think it's going to start to become more of the norm. So continue to look out for that. These startups are where the successful startups are where we see where the market is going to be trending towards in the next five to 10 years. We hear a lot about AI and machine learning. I mean, that people just cannot stop using those words. And so it'd be interesting to see if the promises of it lead to anything, you know, I, um, certainly they, we, we tout it, but, but, um, when the criminals are always one, Step ahead? Is that the way? Is that the way it goes? So, the good guys are always playing a little catch up. Yeah, I mean, and the idea is that eventually the machine learning starts learning to be on par with or ahead of the attackers. So we'll see how true that narrative pans out. But well, until they take over and then kill us because we're up, we're vulnerable. But like, all right, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Tell AI like is you're the weakest link. Stop using computers. How do you stop using computers? But until we grant AI uh, citizenship, I think we're all right. All right. Good, good, good stuff. Well, I think another solid uh, contribution here. An hour has gone very, very fast. Thanks to those who've come out into the chat room to uh, to check it out. Anything you want to preview ahead for maybe two weeks from, let's see, hold on. Let's make sure I can do this. But let's just now for, say, for two weeks from now as we think about to the next Cyber Frontiers. Yeah, I think we're going to take a little bit more of a, I feel like I've had so much fun with cyber cyber lately. We're going to probably go back and talk about some data science stuff for a little bit. So um, we'll say to be determined. I uh, want to think about some of the, we talked earlier about where the data is really converging on the cybersecurity problem. So I think I'm going to want to highlight that in our next show in a special way. So st stay tuned for that narrative. Cool. Well, we are every other Tuesday at this point, 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern, out here at TheAverageGuy.tv live. Watch my Twitter at Jake Allison. I try to tweet those. We kind of confirm with Christian about an hour or two ahead of time, hey, is this going to work? And then if it does, I'll tweet, let you know you're coming. Just plan on checking out Tuesday nights. If we are if we miss, we're not out here, whatever. Hey, the guys, uh, Richard and Josh over at Entertainment 2.0 are always great to listen to on Tuesday nights as well. And uh, they're available most Tuesdays, but we'll, we will um, we will do our best to be out here every other week. And it's kind of exciting to be back. Christian, thanks for 
making an effort. Man, it's good to have you back in the chair. Yeah, it's totally awesome to be here and to be sharing content and conversation with our listeners. So thank yeah. you very much. Some good stuff. You bet. Hey, just a reminder, we talked a lot about Maple Grove Partners, so I'll leave that ad out here in the end. But if you're <laughs> Probably for the best. <laughs> MapleGrovePartners.com. We, we always welcome your questions, comments, uh, contributions. If you have them, if you got questions for Christian, you can send those to him directly. If you want Christian at TheAverageGuy.tv, you can send them to me, Jim, at TheAverageGuy.tv. And I mentioned my Twitter account earlier, uh, at Jay Collison. Yeah, great way to support the show now that we're up in, in normal uh, normal activity. We've got a Patreon account that's out there, uh, out at theaverageguy.tv. If you want to donate a dollar or five dollars towards the show, whatever, something along those lines, that's always appreciative, helps support things that's going on. And we do have officially the Amazon affiliate link. It's Prime Week. So if you're listening to this now, there's all kinds of deals going on. Make sure you click through to get those deals. Head out to theaverageguy.tv, click on the Amazon link, click through. Of course, that goes into the Tech Scholarship Fund. We do all kinds of, we're able to do all kinds of fun stuff with that. We're rebuilding that account. It takes a couple months to get the money flowing again. Of course, it helps when you purchase through Amazon. Doesn't cost you anymore, but helps us out as well. We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, next uh, two weeks, Tuesday. 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern, out at TheAverageGuy.tv Live. If you're listening to this for the first time, one, thanks for subscribing and being here. Two, we'd love to have you come over to Home Gadget Geeks as well on the TheAverageGuy.tv Network. It is another show called Home Gadget Geeks, and actually Christian was a founding member of that. And we talk about all kinds of great gadgets and, and those. Uh, Christian, we've got the founder coming up here. We have the founder of ReadyNAS. Come on. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that was a huge surprise. Yeah. Not something I was working on. And of course, you know, we co- we all come out of a home server show uh, group that, that Ava got us all started. And the NAS market, of course, has taken off. And so the founder of Ready NAS will be on here, I think, July 27th. So that week, uh, the, the next time we're on that week. Uh, so I had a little chat with them today. They've been, they have a new product that we're going to, we're going to talk about. Not Ready NAS, that got sold to Netgear. But uh, Paul will be on spend some time talking about his new product. I actually have it here. We're going to demo it. It'll be pretty cool. So you might want to join us over at Home Gadget Geeks as well, uh, coming up on July 27th. Thanks for coming out tonight. Stay around for a little bit of post-show. With that, we'll say goodnight. Good night.